0: One half was implementing socialist policies. One half was implementing more free market capitalist policies and the observed conditions that resulted from that implementation could hardly be more stark to the point where they literally had to build, what did he describe here? Uh, Walls, barbed wire, electrified fences, minefields, automatic shooting devices, watchtowers for nine for a 900 mile stretch to keep people from Exiting the socialist regime and escaping into the capitalist regime. I would imagine that the
1: North Korea South Korea uh, distinction also would be another really good mm. example of this. Um, I think I've read that like even the height difference among the South Koreans and North Korean like is several inches of height difference. Mm. Um, like they're shorter because they're malnutrition and whatever. So I, I do think that the East German, West German, and the North Korea, South Korea examples are two of the best to illustrate the harmful effects of socialism.
0: Hey, everybody, welcome to the What is Money show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the collection of money. Education, self-sovereignty, etc. So, what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. It looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection. No GPS, it's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res, three-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Leden. Leden lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Leden has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L E D N.io today to sign up. Stefan Kinsella, welcome back to the What is Money Show. Hey, glad to be here. Glad to have you again. Uh, we're going to continue our journey into Hoppe's A Theory of Socialism and Capitalism. And We've already laid out the case um, through Hoppe's work here that aggression against private property or private ownership uh, has all of these deleterious consequences from a theoretical standpoint. And what we're going to dive into first today with this this excerpt from page 48 in the PDF is some more of the empirical aspect of of what... um, what socialism actually does in in practice. And so he's using the case of East and West Germany to begin. And this is a long excerpt, but I think it contains a lot that'll get us off to a good start. So I'll start here. Hoppe writes, the case of West and East Germany is particularly instructive. Here, history provides us with an example that comes as close to that of a controlled social experiment as one could probably hope to get. A quite homogenous population with very much the same history, culture, and character structure, work ethics divided after Hitler, Hitler, Germany's defeat in World War II. In West Germany, more because of lucky circumstances than the pressure of public opinion, a remarkably free market economy was adopted. The previous system of all-around price controls abolished in one stroke, and almost complete freedom of movement, trade, and occupation occupation introduced. In East Germany, on the other hand, under Soviet-Russian dominance, Socialization of the means of production, i.e. an expropriation of the previous private owners, was implemented. Two different institutional frameworks, two different incentive structures have thus been applied to the same population. The difference in the results is impressive. While both countries do well in their respective blocks, West Germany has the highest standard of living among the major West European nations, and East Germany prides itself in being the most well-off country in the East Bloc. The standard of living in the, the, of living in the West is so much higher and has become relatively more so over time that despite the transfer of considerable amounts of money from West to East by government as well as private citizens... And increasingly socialist policies in the West, the visitor going from West to East is simply stunned as he enters an almost completely different impoverished world. As a matter of fact, while all of the East European countries are plagued by the immigration problem of people wanting to leave for the more prosperous capitalist West, with its increased opportunities... And while they have gradually established tighter border controls, thus turning these countries into sort of gigantic prisoner camps in order to prevent this outflow, the case of Germany is a most striking one. With language differences, traditionally the most severe natural barrier for immigrants non-existent, the difference in living standards between the two Germanys proved to be so great And immigration from East to West took on such proportions that in 1961, the socialist regime in East Germany, in a last desperate step, finally had to close its borders to the West completely. To keep the population in, it had to build a system the likes of which the world had never seen of walls, barbed wire, electrified fences, minefields, automatic shooting devices, watchtowers, etc., almost 9,000 miles long, I'm sorry, 900 miles long for the sole purpose of preventing its people from running away from the consequences of Russian-type socialism. So, um, quite a long excerpt, but just very telling, right, that we have perhaps the most, you know, there's no constants in human action, which makes it very, makes it impossible, basically, to do experiments but i think he's arguing here that we have the closest thing to a homogenous whole we've ever had with a you know a split right down the middle that one half right. was implementing socialist policies one half was implementing more free market capitalist policies and the observed conditions that resulted from that implementation could hardly be more stark to the point where they literally had to build what did he describe here? Uh, walls, barbed wire, electrified fences, minefields, automatic shooting devices, watchtowers for nine for a 900-mile stretch to keep people from exiting the socialist regime and escaping into the capitalist regime. Um, I, you know, just a very telling observation, and I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this.
1: Well, I would imagine that the North Korea South Korea uh, distinction also would be another uh, another really good mm-hmm. example of this. Um, I think I've I've uh, I've read Michael Malice's book on this, and uh, from from the studies, um, I think I've read that like you, you know even the height difference among the South Koreans, North Korean, like several inches of height difference. Mm. Um, Like they're shorter because they're malnutrition and whatever. So I I do think that the East German, West German and the North Korea, South Korea examples are two of the best to illustrate um, um, the harmful effects of socialism. What I find of interest. So Hoppe in his book here, right. It's called a theory of socialism and capitalism. So, the whole point of the book is to try to identify in sort of um, principled or economic or practically logical terms the essential differences between the two, which is why he defines socialism in in sort of what some people would might think of as, as an idiosyncratic way as the um, as the institutionalized interference with private property rights whereas the, the 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 conventional definition is you know centralized control of the means of production but because Hoppe is a is an austrian and a subjectivist um number 1 um he realizes that the goods never have an essential um defining characteristic like you can never say this thing is a private good or a public good this thing is a um um uh, a capital good or a consumer good because the classification of the good depends upon the uses to which human actors want to put it, which is a subjective evaluation. So that's an Austrian point. So goods never have an intrinsic characteristic. And and so if you d- define socialism by saying um, it's the collective ownership of the means of production or capital goods, well, what's a capital good, right? I mean is my car –… that I used to go to work every day, but I also used to take on vacations, and I enjoy seeing in my driveway, is that a capital good or a consumer good? It depends on my su- subjective uh, consumer evaluation of it. Um, and so COPPA defines it in more essentialist terms, like let, let's get to the heart of the problem. It's that you have the state, the centralized collective organization… Um, Claiming ownership rights in 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 other people's property, right, which is like so, it's basically aggression of one type or the other. So I, th- I think that's that's one way to look at the um um one of the benefits of the way Hoppe approaches all this. And so, therefore, based upon this, he classifies. And so, the book, if you look at the book, so I think the chapter you're reading from was chapter three, I believe, right. Would you say it was page 49? Yeah, page 49 through 51. Yeah. Right. So so that's chapter three, socialism, Russian style. But mm-hmm. he, chapter four is socialism, social democratic style. And chapter five is so, the socialism of, of conservatism. And chapter six is the socialism of social engineering. So he basically has this broad definition of socialism as the institutionalized interference of private property rights. Now, Hoppe as a libertarian is also against private crime. And so so are you and I. But if someone, you know, robs me or, or steals from me or kills me, that's not institutionalized. It's just like a private random act of violence by a private gang or a private criminal. And we're against that, but we're also against the institutionalized um um application of, of aggression which can only be done by an institution which is the state and so that's why um even if we're against private crime we're leery of like you know say oh the pol- the police have to stop crime because the police are agents of the state and this in the state is an agent an agency of bigger crime right because it's institutionalized and you can't get away from it you can get away from a highwayman or a guy at a robbing you in a park maybe, or it's a one-time event, and then you're free of it. But Uh they don't follow you around forever, Um, (laughs) but the government follows you around forever, and they're always there. So what he does is he applies this idea of aggression as the institutionalized uh, taking of private property rights in different flavors. So you have social democracy. You have uh, fascism. You have socialism, Russian style, etc., etc. Um, so I think that's what he's getting at there. And, you know, he, you know, what's interesting about Hans Hoppe is that um I don't I don't know where you where you came from in your earlier political views, but I was always sort of like um um I came from nothing. Like I had no political views. I was an agnostic, let's say. And then I became kind of a Ronald Reagan conservative and then and then a libertarian. But um uh and, and in America people that came from the left I'm always suspicious of but in in Europe it was more common so Hans was earlier than us he was younger than us uh, uh, older than us and you know he came he came to awakeness in the in the 60s and the 70s so he was he briefly dabbled in leftism because that was the culture that was a milieu um but he earlier then he finally discovered um you know Austria, Rothbard and Mises and Austrian economics and libertarian thought and and rejected it. So, but, but what I find interesting is that so he 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 can see this. So he 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 can see the the evils of leftism and and the way it was applied in eastern eastern Germany because I think his family was actually expropriated. Um, and so he can see more clearly the evils of that type of government and that type of political mentality. Which a lot of Americans um and, and and some Western Europeans um just gloss over or they just whitewash it away or they just ignore it.
0: Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Um and I think the framing is really useful, right? Again, just always focus on property, right? That whether I think he says socialism is an institutionalized policy of aggression against private property or private right. ownership and capitalism is the opposite right the institutionalized policy of honoring private property and contract etc um now as well, far- remember this also uh, so the, the
1: way austrians view like economic theory and even political theory to a certain extent is um when we come up with historical examples, we're we're not like we're using that to il- illustrate a point. So right. you have a theory, a general theory, it could be an ethical theory, it could be uh, an economic theory, which is um a proposition that this result will will accompany a certain uh action or policy initiative. um
0: it's like an explanatory framework it's
1: explanatory like right we illustrate so it's it's illustrative so we're not trying to prove you know so so like mises believe that um um and, and even hayek to a degree like uh, the problem of scientism is the idea of improperly applying the methods of the social sciences to the natural sciences like right. so that the natural sciences are aimed at trying to undercover, uncover um, the causal laws that govern the world of causality, causation. Mm. And the only way to do that, because we don't have direct um, um, experience of that, the only way to do that is to do experiments that can be falsified, right? So that's the logical positivist method of empiricism, Right. But that's embedded in a larger framework of understanding about what knowledge is. So we have knowledge of the causal laws of the world by our experience, right? And then we can systematize it with the scientific method. But we also have other knowledge, which is garnered by logic and reason and a priori, you know, the epidictic or a priori sciences, which would be economics, maybe logic, maybe some aspects of math, mm-hmm. some parts of philosophy, whatever. Um, but they keep these things in clear dist- distinction with each other, right? So the point is when you when Hoppe like brings up this East Germany, West Germany contrast, he's not trying to he's not trying to prove a causal law. He's trying to illustrate. Um, Something that should be obvious from the application of praxeological logic applied to ethics and human norms in economics, right? Like if you have a monopolist in control of the the law, then they will tend to underproduce the right kind of goods and overproduce the wrong kind of goods or or services, right? Uh, It's it's like a logical – It's a logical inference, but then you can illustrate it by highlighting uh, historical examples. So I think that's what he's doing here.
0: Yeah, exactly. So it's like you logically deduce what you would expect to be true, and then you use observation to support that position.
1: To help you, it's it's almost didactic. It's like the or, or pedagogical. Like the point of it is to help you cement your your logical framework by, mm-hmm. by, 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 uh, by, uh, seeding it in certain, um, um, actual historical examples.
0: Yes. And the one, like just quick example, I've always found to be very useful on this sort of abstract topic is, um, the sun going around the earth, right? There was a long time that the theory was, that the sun revolved around the earth. And so the, the observed data of the sun rising and setting fit that theory. But then we basically use mathematics to say, you know, this is the Copernican revolution. So actually the math says the earth is going around the sun. So it's you, you actually interpret the observed data, the empirically observed data gets interpreted through the theory, the explanatory framework and so the the theory is in many ways more fundamental than even the yeah. the actual act of observation
1: right the, yeah the theory always has to come first and this oh. is so so as as a as, as another example of this um take the approach of most people most scientists today most even most philosophers or many philosophers um the impi- the logical positivists or the empirical method which basically has this assumption that the only thing that's scientifically meaningful is a uh, a hypothesis that is uh, testable by some kind of experiment, right? Mm-hmm. Or falsifiable. Um but and that's the that's the that's the scientific method, right? Like you, mm-hmm. you formulate a hypothesis and then you can come up with a way to have repeatable ways of testing it. But testing it doesn't mean confirming it. It, it only means mm-hmm not falsifying it right right Fine. um but the problem is that whole hypothesis itself is not itself subject to the its own theory because right. you can't it's it's like taken as it's like it's just assumed to be the way you do things right yes um it, it, it's not it, it's not itself falsifiable so by its own terms it's unscientific exactly so yes <laughs> so you always have to embed uh empirical and causal studies they're always uh subordinate to and dependent upon a higher level philosophical approach which which is just philosophy in general right and, uh the idea of how we uh how we acquired knowledge epistemology all this kind of stuff uh, and that's that's all fine but you have to appreciate that and the problem is most physicists are woefully unprepared for it and in their defense most of the philosophers they're learning from seem like they're talking gibberish so you can understand why they just reject it and they just say screw it there's not two types of knowledge because your type of knowledge is bullshit <laughs> there's just our type of knowledge uh-huh. but they but they, they they don't understand that their type of knowledge rests upon the first type of knowledge so you got to get the first type Right, right. So yes. you have to have a metaphysics, you have to have an epistemology, you have to have a worldview about uh, the way the way knowledge works. Uh, and um, so y- you can go with a common sense view of this. You don't have to be that deep about it. But I think you ultimately do have to do it. And I do think that um, if you study this more deeply, I do think that as Hoppe has explained in his – um his little short pamphlet economic science and the Austrian method and some related sure. essays. Great book. Um, I think that the um the way that Mises himself applied Kantian a priorism, right? Kantian philosophy, mm. which does have some problems. However, Mises took he took it the realist side of it, and Hoppe glommed onto that and built on it. Um, I think you can that's the that's the right way to sort all this out. Um, I'm not a big enough thinker to do it myself, but I can appreciate the steps taken towards that by Hoppe and Mises and even Rothbard to a certain degree. And and of course, um, and even even Hayek to some degree. Yeah. With with Hayek's critique of of uh,
0: of logical positivism and what he calls scientism. Yes. Yeah, it, that book you meant um economic science and the Austrian method, I think is the name of that short book or pamphlet that Hopper wrote. That's a really good one. Um, I, you know, a rabbit hole in and unto itself. He, I think even in that book, he makes a claim that causality itself is a subcategory of human action, right? That we are observing these regularities. Like every time I boil water to take water to this temperature, it boils or it freezes, we assume that there's causation there, but it's really right. just a matter of regularity.
1: Yeah, and this ties into sort of my uh, – things I've learned by seeing the connections between these different ways of, of looking at at, at at all this stuff um, with intellectual property and things like that. So mm. this is not too far afield, but so, so one of the arguments for IP um, – Or one of the arguments against IP that I've come up with, I'd say, is that um, the right way to understand and comprehend human action and human behavior is that we have to view other people acting in what I call a praxeological framework. Like that is according to the way Mises laid it down. But the praxeological framework, and I think in Mises' case, he underemphasized… an important aspect of human action or praxeology so he focused on so praxeology means it's the logic of human action and uh-huh. human action means that we we are we are intelligent conscious people with desires and goals and and uh-huh. appreciation of our environment and we seek to change the world the future world by intervening right Mm-hmm. Um, we want to we 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 have some sense, we have some dissatisfaction um uh or discomfort with what's coming, with what we think is coming. Like if I don't intervene, then you know, my granddaughter won't get a brownie or whatever. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. The point yeah. is you think like if I don't do something, the the future universe will be something suboptimal to me. Yes. So I'm going to take some action to change it. To try to intervene in the state of affairs and to make it different than what it would be if I don't intervene. And the way you do that is you use your body and your direct control from your brain and your mind over your body to manipulate things in the world that can intervene causally. So this is the causal part Mm -hmm. of of the world, and we call these things means, means of action. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Mises emphasizes means of action all the time. What he neglects, uh he doesn't deny it, but he he gives it like one thousandth excuse me, the treatment of of the means is that when you act in addition to having the ability to use your body, the the physical freedom to use your body and to manipulate scarce means to get what you want done you also need to make choices and decisions with your mm-hmm. intellect which mm-hmm. requires knowledge okay mm-hmm. so you have to have some knowledge of causal laws so all successful human action according to the praxeological framework has to employ scarce means that means have them available and you can manipulate them and you can mm-hmm. use them but that you have to do something that makes sense right i mean if you mm-hmm. want to cause something to happen you ha- you have to do the right thing if you if you think that you can ex- make 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 something explode by getting sand off the beach and pouring water on it and blowing on it, right. <laughs> it's just not going to work. Yeah. So to to know what to do, you need to have knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of causal laws, and that's what scientific knowledge and natural knowledge comes in. Yeah. Um. But so so that's those are the two the two necessary ingredients of successful human action. You have to have knowledge. Which Rothbard, I think, generalizes as recipes. Mm -hmm. Like a recipe is like a series of steps of things that will work if you just follow them, right? Like if you want to make an airplane fly, you need to make it this way and have fuel in it or whatever. Or if you make a bomb or if you you want to catch a fish, you need to build a net or a spear or a fishing line or whatever. Like Mm -hmm. it's a series of steps. It's, but that's information. That's knowledge, and so I forgot where I was going with this, but so, but, 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 this ties into intellectual property theory because you realize that, oh, so we have to have property rights in the scarce resources, in these means, but not in the knowledge. And in fact, having property rights in the knowledge impedes the knowledge because then people now they can't do the best thing. Like right. if one guy knows how to catch a fish the best way, but the other guy can't emulate the first guy's way when he yeah. learns about it, then now he's catching less fish. And so his, if his efforts being wasted, Yeah. whereas, whereas if they don't have a property right in the net, they can't use it to catch the fish. So you need property rights for the material scarce things, but not in the other things. So, Oh, I, I forgot where I started this, but but this this IP this IP ties into what were we talking about before?
0: Well, we started with people acting in a praxeological framework. Um, and you were saying that basically that's you know we're I guess you have to understand that people are using means to pursue ends. Mises is focusing on the means, but Correct. there's all there also has to be the knowledge. Um, to make the means usable, and I get—I guess this does this involve ends somehow that you have to have knowledge that the well, ends so are attainable by the means, right? This Otherwise. is something.
1: So yeah, so I hate to—I uh, hate to uh, uh, dabble into fields I'm not professionally prepared for, but but I've never okay. seen anyone address this in a systematic way. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe somewhere out there, Kersner or Hayek or Mises or Rothbard does, and I've forgotten about it, but. Um, Yeah, I think there's two different types of knowledge, right? So – or two different types of information. So when you act, you have to choose your end, like what you're pursuing, what you want Mm -hmm. to change about the future. But you also have to choose your means. So you need knowledge of – so you need two types of knowledge, and I think they blend together Mm -hmm. um, because they reinforce each other. So, for example – I don't know. I want to have a birthday party for my for my for my niece in three days. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, to do that, I have to like hire, you know, all the people. I have to get the the materials. I've got to look at the weather, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um. So my end goal is to have a nice birthday party for my niece. Okay, but I also need to know how to do it. Mm-hmm. So I need to know something about the world, like what the current day-to-day physical aspect of the world is like what supplies are available to me what Mm -hmm. what services are available to me like what's realistic Mm -hmm. and is 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 there a tornado coming right Mm -hmm. so you have to like you have to know what you're so like there might be 10 ways i could satisfy my niece for her birthday with her with with some kind of party or whatever Mm -hmm. or some kind of event um But to know what those ten ways are, I have to know what means are possible to achieve them. So Mm -hmm. there's a combination of selecting the means to achieve your ends but also selecting the ends. So the knowledge that I see is um, in selecting your end and and selecting the means to achieve it. I -hmm. mean look. Let's take a simpler example. Let's say I want just a satisfying dessert after my meal. And all I've ever heard about is chocolate and vanilla uh, ice cream. Okay, I've never heard of strawberry ice cream. If 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 I've never heard about the existence of strawberry ice cream, then I'm going to seek means to achieve getting either chocolate or vanilla. And then I'll choose between them. And that demonstrates opportunity, cost, and demonstrated preference and all that kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. right? But it wouldn't even occur to me to choose a means to get strawberry ice cream because I didn't know it existed. right? But if I become aware of the existence of that, then my universe of possibilities for my ends expands. And then I can use my knowledge of local conditions and causality – Scientific laws, technical Mm -hmm. laws, recipes, to figure out okay which which ones are possible to achieve, and what are the relative costs among these means. So Mm -hmm. I could get strawberry for ten dollars, chocolate for five, and vanilla for four, and then I can make a choice, right, Mm -hmm. knowing my my needs. So I find that this knowledge component is fascinating. and it is different between the ends and the means, but they both play a role in efficient and successful human action. And I find them both fascinating.
0: Yeah. Agreed. And and tell me if this is correct though, that the, because somewhat, I think what Hoppe is saying here is that there are means that are appropriate, right? You can almost say, I don't know, objectively there are appropriate means for certain ends, as in private property or private ownership private ownership being a proper means to the end of increasing the standard of living and all these other uh, economic benefits but so that's kind of like more of a scientific thing you could say which like the theory will tell you that private property is the proper means to the end of i guess let's put that under human flourishing or increased standard of living something like that but th- those same that same scientific approach or a theoretical approach cannot tell you which ends to select, right? That's purely subjective. And that, you you know, your, your metric for success could be increased standard of living, or it could be decreased standard of living could be anything. Right. So there's, there's some difference there where there's like an objective relationship between employing proper means for a chosen end, but the choosing of the end itself is inherently subjective now i'd like to tell you about our sponsor crowd health crowd health is a bitcoin enabled alternative to legacy health insurance now let's face it legacy health insurance is an absolute scam nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian chris rock
1: insurance you got to have some insurance you got to that's an insurance they shouldn't even call it insurance they should just call it in case shit.
0: So, go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy-to-use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So, go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach. Uh, This is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, Day one's industry day, days two and three are gonna be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, Just a really all around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup, including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year we did a 10 million SATS giveaway for this event and we're gonna do it again this year. So, to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference slash 2023 and use code BREEDLOVE. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CASA. CASA makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, CASA provides a multi key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today. To sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE.
1: I'm not sure where he talks about proper means. I, I think that I think that we have to distinguish between um, um, economics and between uh, normative theorizing. Okay, mm-hmm. so technically speaking, the Austrians like Rothbard and Hoppe, Mises, they 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 use this term Wartfrei. Wor- W-E-R-T-F-R-E-I, which means Mm value-free, which means their economic analysis is value-free. So they're just describing human action. And I think we we do lose sight of this sometimes in our analyses because um, there's a blending of terminology between fields. So, um, I mean, you see this in – so, for example, we see this in Bitcoin people use the word ownership to say i own my bitcoin right but what That's they possession. really mean it i think they really mean economic ownership which means possession which uh-huh. means the ability to control a resource which uh-huh. which is what robinson so robinson crusoe alone on his desert island um can have a net to catch fish but he doesn't own it in a legal sense because mm-hmm. there is no other. There's no other people. There's no other. There's no legal a legal system, framework. Yeah, right. But yeah. so so, the word ownership in that case is used to mean um, capacity or capability or mm-hmm. ownership. I'm sorry, or possession. Um, whereas in the legal system it means the legal right to exclude people from using it by right. um and, and, and the problem is people get these things conflated because they do flow into each other. Mm-hmm. Um so I
0: yeah, they I both think involve we, control. One's just absent the legal framework and one is with a legal framework, supported by the legal framework.
1: Yeah, the legal framework um is there to Improve your chances of the ability to control something, but it's right. not a guarantee. Right. But they're, they're, so they're related. They're definitely not distinct. Just like, you know, like I think we said last time, I mean, there are concepts we have that help us understand the world. And they're not the same, but they're related. So, mm-hmm. like the mind and the brain are different concepts, they refer to different entities in the world. Mm-hmm they're not unrelated but they're not the same thing
0: mm-hmm.
1: because a dead person can have a brain but they don't have a mind right and you your your mind has your brain has a weight your your mind doesn't have a weight they're different right. so they're, they're different they're different things same thing with person person and body like the identity of a person the personality you have your personhood mm-hmm. your legal personality your legal identity um your your status as an actor is distinct from your body, although you can't. I, I, I would, I would argue, you can't have a personhood or, an, or 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 a personality without a body, right? Like you can't have a a mind without a brain. But that right. doesn't, doesn't mean they're the same concepts. So we have to be really careful about this problem of equivocation and with confusion over uh,
0: concepts and terminology that blend into each other. Definitely. Yes. And I, I guess to, to echo something you said earlier, um, you know, the the purpose, I think it was Aristotle, maybe that said this, the purpose of knowledge is action, not knowledge, right? So the, we, you, you use the knowledge um, of causality or whatever it may be to act effectively in the world, right? To intervene as you described, to try and bring, bring about a desired end state and in that world so obviously you need actual you know physical s- scarce means to intervene in the world and change the course of affairs but you also need knowledge well the means are scarce and excludable right we we need property or private ownership in the means but the knowledge is not right the knowledge is just this recipe or pattern of knowing or methodology whatever right. it be that it's not for me to give it to you I, does not mean I can't use it. Like we can both use it at the same time. It's not scarce. Right. And, it's not and, excludable. And, and,
1: and I would not, I would not say that knowledge is useful only insofar as it's a, a technical recipe to allow you to um, successfully exploit scarce resources to sure. achieve your ends. Um, I think in human life, we have many dimensions of our existence. And I think yep. that knowledge for knowledge's sake is also valuable, but that's more of a uh, you might call it a consumer good, right? Or yeah. part of being human, living, uh, just you know, understanding, you know, an opera or a play, or mm-hmm. uh, having an appreciation of the way the sun works, or something like that, could be mm-hmm. valuable in it, in and of itself. But I, that, to me, is the is the domain of I don't know philosophy or something like that, which is fine. Um, it has its own domain. Um, but I would say that I I the I I do believe that. Um, Recognizing um, the the immense indispensable utility of 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 recipes of technical knowledge, causal laws, engineering uh, knowledge, things like this, um, is the reason why in the year twenty twenty three, which it is right now, we are far richer in material terms than the Romans. Yeah. I don't think we're smarter than the Romans. <laughs> I right. think that we've accumulated more knowledge than the Romans yep. because knowledge can accumulate. Yes. And it's 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 a non-scarce resource which means everyone can use it and they can dip into it, they can build on it and so over time and especially with more and more people, which I think is a good thing, the more people you have, the more geniuses that might randomly emerge mm-hmm. and and dip into this this – this Hyatt called it a fund of experience, like mm-hmm. – um, uh, so you have this n- base of knowledge which grows every – I mean we can say every generation, but it, yeah. it grows every, every second. It grows every yeah. hour. Right. It grows every day. And so every day, because unless we lose the ability to record knowledge and to keep it and to right. repeat it, you don't really lose stuff except the useless stuff you keep the valuable stuff, right? Yes. And so over time, the the foundation of technological knowledge. So like I said before, successful human action requires two ingredients. It requires the availability of scarce means. Now whether those are scarce or not is kind of like a weird debatable thing because you could say that like the universe is infinite or you know the earth is infinite if we just have more resources. But right. you know, from a common sense point of view, it seems like the earth is like a there's a finite, scarce ball of stuff, and we can keep
0: exploiting pretending it. over it.
1: Yeah, but we're, we're we're fighting over it, and it's like yeah. it's like it's it whatever's there is there, and it's been there forever. Yeah. So it's not like we're facing a different Earth than the Romans did two thousand years ago, the yeah. Greeks, or whatever. But our knowledge base. So the second ingredient of human action is 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 the availability of human, uh, uh, sorry, of of technological knowledge of causal. Yeah. Laws of recipes. Mm-hmm. And those keep increasing. And so the reason that we're richer than our ancestors is because – not because the earth has gotten richer, but it's because mm-hmm. our knowledge of how to use it has gotten richer, which yeah. is, again, why I'm a huge opponent of intellectual property law, especially patent law, because it, it slows down the spread of the discovery of these new ways of using things more efficiently. Which right is to me uh misanthropic and insane. Yes. <laughs> right. yes.
0: Yes. And to try and bridge this back to the book, I guess what Hoppe is doing here is he's presented this theory, right? Here's here's a theory of socialism and capitalism. Here's what you would expect to see according to this theory, this piece of knowledge, right? You'd expect to see a higher standard of living, uh, more innovation occurring in a capitalist society than you would in a socialist society. And then he's using the example of East and West Germany as kind of the observational or empirical um, case study to support that theory, right? So he's actually, this is a piece of knowledge that would be useful for action, right? If you use this piece of knowledge hey, structuring your society in a capitalistic way will give you more economic abundance, let's say than a socialistic structuring, then you can use that to inform action, right. And how you actually structure the world. So. um,
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point. I think, um, or you could say something like um, knowing, knowing the way things work, like knowing the fact that there's a business cycle that can happen because of government intervention, knowing Knowing the fact that if you inflate the supply of money, that prices will prices will rise. Uh-huh. Like knowing these these, fa- and so actually, Hoppa goes into this in one of his other essays, which is not in this book. I think it's in, um, I think it's in the Great Fiction. Um, but he talks about, um, I think it's called Uncertainty and Uncertainty. So uh-huh. he's talking about the fact that we live in a world that's that's LIMD, L-I-M-N-E-D, like it's sort of bounded by some proxy logical or deductive knowledge, but uh, which, so for example, like, again, you can't inflate by fiat the supply of a currency without expecting it to um, reduce the purchasing power, right? Uh-huh. That's how inflation works. Um, or you can't impose a minimum wage law. And expect it not to cause relative unemployment, Mm -hmm. right? You can know these things abstractly from without experimentation, but you don't know that you don't know the quantities, right? That that takes observation and experiment, yes. Um, but he has a point that, um, the way we have to look at the future from a Misesian, realistic Kantian point of view is that. Um, the future is definitely uncertain because it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and because what happens depends from our point of view, what happens depends upon the choices of other actors, other humans. And we have to regard their choices as being undetermined free will choices. Mm-hmm. So it's impossible to uh, predict the future uh, or to know the future. Um uh, unlike this kind of, you know, the thing from Asimov's Foundation where you have this guy who, Harry, Harry, what's his name, I forgot his name, he came up with a, a st- statistical way to predict the future. It's like, it's not possible because humans are not statistical properties. Mm-hmm. They're not part of what Mises would call um, what uh, class probability. I mean, because we have... Now, I actually don't believe in free will, but you have to regard humans as having free will. And anyway, our knowledge is insufficient to allow us to ever predict the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so the point is the future is uncertain, and that, that governs a lot of what we do when we make choices about – we're always having an estimate about what the future is coming and what we can do to intervene to make it better in our, in our subjective valuation point of view. And that's what human action is always about. <laughs> And sometimes you succeed, sometimes you don't. Yeah. Um, however, he, he rules out this idea of, like, um, um, some of these kind of crazier Austrians. I forgot the name, uh, um, um, the The kaleidoscopic idea that the, the future is, like, uh, inherently uncertain. Like, mm-hmm. if it was inherently uncertain, you could never do anything. Like, so we can know some things. We can know that if I try to do this... It won't be possible. Like if I try to inflate the supply of money and keep prices down, it won't be possible because right. of the nature of the law of supply and demand. So right. there are some bounded limits on what is possible, and that can constrain your knowledge. And that's why the theory is that like, like even if entrepreneurship is an unteachable art yeah. because the future is unknowable, uh, it doesn't mean that some people don't have a better knack or skill at it. And uh-huh. of course… They boil this down to this desideratum of uh, this this sort of uh, uh, in Austria. Uh, uh, Peter Klein talks about this too. Um, of they call it verse to hen, which to me is just like um, it, it's it's a placeholder or it's a variable that you, is a parameter. It's like the verse to hen just means the understanding. So it's like, uh-huh. why did this guy make more money than the other guy? Because he had a better verse to hen. Like okay. That's not an explanation. That's like saying, um,
0: because uh, it is so, or it is like what saying, it is. Okay,
1: the, the the Big Bang doesn't explain the universe. There was a God that did it. It's like okay, but what explains the God? Like yeah. it's like That you're infinite ki- you're regress. Kicking it, you're kicking it, kicking it back a level. So uh, yeah, it, it, if I had my druthers, I would like some budding young genius Austrian to um to unpack. The nature of the verse to hen and mm. the nature of entrepreneurial success. Like why do some people why are they better? Is it just random or they do they actually have a skill? And if they have a skill, what is the skill? Yeah, because well, we can't you know, can't see right? the future, but there's something about their ability that allows them to profit right. in the face of competition.
0: But it's right. like since we can't know the future, that you can never know what conditions will prevail. You can't, you couldn't possibly know which skill set will be most fit because you don't know the conditions, right? So, right.
1: so, 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 how do you know if someone is a good financial right.
0: advisor? How do you know? But just right.
1: because they've made a profit for the last seventeen years, well, maybe they were just in a bull market. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Right. Uh, how right, do you? Right. How? How do they know? how does someone know that they're how does does warren buffett know that he's a good investor and is he and what is what is the what is the skill that he has what exactly is it is it just luck because (sighs) someone's going to come out on top you know i don't
0: know
1: To, to me that's one of the unexplored mysteries of austrian economics that i would love to see uh developed um a little bit better
0: yeah agreed it's um Definitely a lot there, but I guess we're, we're getting close to time here. So Hoppe, Hoppe has laid out this theoretical framework of what you would expect to see. And then he sort of supported those expectations with observations of this split between East and West Germany. I'll read one more little excerpt here that goes a little further on that. Here writes that almost everyone working in East Germany knows many ways to put the means of production to more urgent uses... Than the ones currently being used, where they are evidently wasted and cause shortages of other more heavily demanded goods. But since they are not able to bid them away and must instead go through tedious political procedures to initiate any changes, nothing much can be or indeed is done. He goes on to write Experience also corroborates what has been said about the other side of the coin, the overutilization of publicly owned means of production. In West Germany, such public goods also exist, and as would be expected, they are in relatively bad shape. But in East Germany, and no differently, or in fact, even worse, in other Soviet-dominated countries, where all factors of production are socially owned, insufficiently maintained, deteriorating, unrepaired, rusting, even simply vandalized production factors, machinery, and buildings are truly rampant. Further, the ecology crisis is much more dramatic in the East, in spite of the relatively undeveloped state of the general economy than in the West. And all that is not, and all this is not, as the case of Germany proves clearly enough, because there are differences in people's natural inclination to care and to be careful. So the theory that he's put forth is, I guess you would say, strongly supported by these observations that... Things are in disrepair. Um, assets are not going to their highest and best use because they cannot be bid away. They must instead go through some type of socialist political procedure to determine how they are allocated. Um, and I guess yeah, that I is- think
1: I, th- I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to illustrate the command economy Russian style uh, approach to socialism, just so that people get a clear idea in their heads of the different ways socialism can manifest, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, his general theory is that it's the institutionalized aggression against private property. And this logically would lead to various inefficient uses and unjust uses of property. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to illustrate it by giving historical examples of this one flavor. And in the other chapters, he does it for the other types, too. So I guess at the end you're supposed to see um okay well yeah socialism is completely economically inefficient mm-hmm. and and normatively unjust yes. because it always results in aggression or takings or theft and it always results in lower like lower subjective standards of living for the people that appraise their own you know, the way the way that their life is lived, because yes. the only way that values can make sense is if people subjectively um, um, demonstrate them by their action. So I think one of one of the things you read earlier, like uh, you, if you don't if the government provides something, say, for free, it's not for free, of course, because they had to tax us or commandeer us to, to provide these goods like a bridge or a road or a state opera or whatever, um, then. You can never know that it's worth anything to the people that are the uh, alleged consumers. It might even be what he calls a bad because, like, you know, let's, let, uh, take the drug war, for example. You know, mm-hmm. the government taxes us to fund the cops that stop uh, 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 prohibited drug distribution, but that's not necessarily a good because no one's demonstrating their preference for it. But even if they were selling pretzels for like two cents on the street, it doesn't show that um, the people preferred that because, uh, yeah, the price is subsidized, but they I, they had to pay for it without a choice. So you've removed the market mechanism for determining um, – and this is, by the way, what Rothbard talks about in his utility and welfare economics case is like – The only way you can really tell what people value is by their, their, their actions, by their demonstrated Uh preference. Uh But you can only, that only has, is meaningful if they're free. If you're, if you're compulsed or compelled, then you don't know, you don't really know what their real preference or value was.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess in conclusion uh, we could perhaps formulate the statement that if and improving standard of living is the end that you have in mind for social organization, then socialism is an improper means to that end. Yeah, that that's, that's
1: one way to put it. And that's, that's of course the implication of Henry Hazlitt's book, um, economics in one lesson. And a lot of Mises's work is like, it's more of a consequentialist approach. It's like, if, if your approach and Randy Barnett, by the way, in his structure of liberty, uh, if your if your goal is to impre- increase human well being in any kind of meaningful way that most people expect, like a material prosperity or abundance mm-hmm. or, or, or 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 whatever, then yeah, the the means to achieve that would be private property rights and freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wouldn't be socialism.
0: Yeah, and the. It's kind of, I mean, tell me if this resonates, but like capitalism, private ownership, private property, it's really just acknowledging this reality of like a one-to-one relationship between an individual and an asset, right? Like only one individual can use an asset at any one time. They can control it and exclude others from it. Whereas this idea of socialism that everyone owns the one thing, like you can't, it's not possible to get everyone's approval for the one person to use the one thing <laughs> in any correct. efficient so, so way.
1: Yeah. It's not, it's not possible. And if you, if you actually Rothbard points this out in some of his writing, in ethics of liberty, yeah. uh, if you actually had a rule where you had to get everyone's permission, then we would, the human race would just die because you, right. you, it's not feasible to do that. Exactly. And so this, what she calls like communism. So um, in, in reality, these systems never do that. They they delegate the authority to some so, so, so some some legal system, which is usually uh-huh. the the Politburo or the Central Committee or whatever. Uh-huh. But the point is, every, so every legal system in the end always assigns property rights to these conflictable scarce resources uh-huh. to some owner. They always do this. So, so in in a, in, a, in, a, in a purely capitalist society by Hoppe's vision it would be private owners according to original appropriation and contract like here's how you determine who owns this resource you ask who got it first and who got it by contract from a previous owner that's it right really simple who made Um, it who traded it yeah And then, um, and then, but in socialism, it's like, well, what does the central committee say, right, Right. or the legislature, or or the government, or whatever? But there's always there's always an assignment of ownership. It's just that you know, um, in a socialist society, that you know, things are assigned basically to some committee that's part of the government. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then, the question for the libertarian is, it's not. It's is, is not like – we'll put it this way. The distinction between libertarianism and between other systems is not private property ownership. It's the allocation rules because in every system, there's someone that's going to be the effective owner right. in that legal system. And so in libertarianism, it's, again, it's, it's by these natural rules that are fair and seen as fair, yes. and they're also efficiency-generating, right? Right. Uh, right. Original appropriation and uh, contract contractual transfer, right. but in socialism, it's always an arbitrary theft of the property by right. the natural owner by some other person. And when you have theft, it's both unjust and wrong, and causes it's death and harm and destroying. And it's it's inefficient, right? Yeah. It's so yeah. so this is this is ultimately the problem. The question. So the question ultimately is: which property rules? Would justice-seeking, prosperity-seeking, natural, peaceful individuals prefer? And I think the answer is, if you understand a little bit about economics, it's li- the libertarian rules.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is a great place to end. Um, Stefan, thank you so much. Uh, maybe you can just tell my audience real quick where they can find you on the internet.
1: Oh, I'm at NS Kinsella on Twitter and uh, Facebook and StefanKinsella.com. Awesome. We'll link to that in the show notes.
0: Stefan, thank you again. Thanks a lot, my brother.